0: Welcome to Meet the Church. This is a podcast from Providence Church in Austin featuring a new person each week from our congregation. We're excited to discuss the work, interest, and testimonies of our church members to better get to know each other and to talk about experiences with God. I'm Tom Gibson, and this week I get to talk with Ryan Attulo about his early ventures into the world of investigative reporting, the impact of social media on the news industry, and how he's seen themes of justice, forgiveness, and restoration in his work. Well, Ryan, welcome to the Meet the Church podcast. It's good to have you here.
1: I am very thankful to be on here. Uh, excited to chat with you, Tom.
0: All right, on. Well, in a nutshell, Ryan, could you could you share what you do for a living?
1: Yeah. I am a news reporter employed by the Austin American Statesman. So I've done a few different things in the seven years that I've been at the Statesman, different coverage areas. Currently, I cover city of Austin government. So any decisions that are made by the city council and as it relates to budgets and homelessness and response to the winter storm, response to COVID, that's kind of my coverage area. I've been doing that since May. Prior to that, I cover the courthouse, criminal cases, civil cases, criminal justice issues. And prior to that, I moved here to take a job with a statesman to cover the Longhorns football team. And I did that for a couple of seasons, uh, along with some other Longhorn sports. So I've been around the newsroom, many different spots, and uh, they're, they're, they're all fun. I, I've enjoyed them all.
0: Yeah, we were talking right before we were recording that it's it's been a pretty busy year for news, and it, it doesn't seem like you're in in short supply of uh, stories to cover, uh, particularly here in Texas.
1: It's either a, a great thing some days, or or a really exhausting thing other days. Uh, it, it just doesn't stop. I mean, you know, I came on this beat, like I said in May, and very quickly we had the george floyd killing in minneapolis and the riots that spawned from that very busy at that point we were already in covid uh and then we moved forward and police budget cuts here in town were were a big thing and elections and then more covid of course and then a winter freeze and it uh, I probably missed a few things, Tom. You can fill in the blanks if I did. Uh, it, it's, it's just yeah. nonstop. I'm not complaining, but it does get exhausting. And, you know, I don't know that I'm working any more hours than I would if things were slow, but it's just the level of attention that goes into those hours can be a little draining.
0: What has been a typical day for you? got uh, kind of uh, in this world for the last year.
1: Well, wake up and immediately look at my phone to see what happened, what I missed, if anything, make sure that the city didn't burn down while I was sleeping. And then, uh, you know, I'll I'll go for a run, get ready for work, and usually stay home, sometimes go to the office, and it's just go time at that point. You're, You're reading Twitter to see what's going on, making phone calls. There's meetings. You're sending emails. You're talking to sources. You're looking at things that are in front of your eyes right there that day. And then also trying to keep a view. What am I going to write next week, next month, big picture of things rather than just focusing on this eight hours ahead of me. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's fun. I, I, my wife makes fun of me all the time. I don't multitask well at all. So if she's trying to talk to me while I'm, working. uh, She doesn't get much attention. I I just, I'm very much laser focused. Um, I wish there was a better way. I wish I knew how to do it differently, but I'm, uh, it's kind of adrenaline rush for me for the whole day. Yeah.
0: What, what sort of kind of led you down the path of being a a reporter? Um, Was it something that you, you kind of knew from a young age? Did, did it, did you become interested because of a particular moment in your life?
1: My freshman year of high school I was in a computer science class and I, and I don't know what this assignment had to do with computer science, but we were assigned to write a one-page story on a career that interested us. And you know, I was fourteen, I had not given any thought to that, but always liked sports and as much as I really didn't love school, I did always excel in English. I I liked words. I liked vocabulary, reading, writing. So I decided to write a one-page paper that I would be interested in being a sports writer and turned it in, didn't think anything of it. it. And then teacher says, well, there's a second part. We're doing a personality test. I think many uh, listeners probably are familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality test. Filled in all the bubbles and my 100% match was journalist. Uh, Oh my gosh. Like that's, I was not expecting that 100% match. (laughs) So at that point, I just kind of shut it down. I had made my decision that I was going to be a a journalist, more specifically a sports writer. And I began working for local papers, 20 bucks an article um, and just kept kind of progressing. Went to college, worked, for the student paper, started getting better gigs, better jobs, and I just, I just stayed with it. I enjoyed it.
0: Was it pretty common for a high schooler to be writing like local <laughs> local articles for whatever local newspapers probably,
1: are? Probably not. Um, my mom really pushed me into it, so I just cold called local papers, daily papers, weekly papers, to see if they had anything for me to do, and. I think they just threw me a bone and you know go cover this travel baseball game or go cover this uh, there was a uh, apple cider festival near my town or something like that so I you know probably uncommon uh but I enjoyed it. I probably thought I was much cooler than I was at that point because my name was in the paper. Uh but it it was was apple cider festival (laughs) right (laughs) up.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Ladies, ladies, did you see? Uh no, that didn't that didn't get me too far socially, but it did get me uh where I wanted to be professionally and I just kept
0: just building from there. How would you say reporting? How is it different today than than when you were in high school and in college?
1: Just going back to our previous discussion, just about the 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 speed that goes into it. You know, something happens, and your editor wants it five minutes ago, and it's just constant. Whereas back when I was in high school or early college, or even once I graduated you were writing for the next day's paper. You weren't writing for the website. You weren't, you didn't have a Twitter audience. You were just worried about meeting that deadline for the next day's print edition. And it was so different because you could scoop people, your competition, you could break news and they wouldn't know until they went to their doorstep in the morning. And then if they wanted to follow up and and, um, report what you had reported, they'd be a full 24 hours behind. So it, it just very different. Uh, now it's so much web-based where I don't want to say we, I'll get in trouble if I say we don't care about our print product because we do, but it's so we're, we're web oriented and we probably should have made as an industry, not just statesman, made that shift many years ago and uh, we didn't. So we were giving away our content for free for anybody that got it on the web and charging the people that got the newspaper delivered. And now we're starting to realize, Hey, we got to charge for the the web content
0: as well. I imagine too, it's like, as it takes time, it takes time to write a a thoughtful and well-researched article when when everything is just about you know do i want to do i want to be the first one with this story do i want to have a an accurate and a a a trustworthy uh, and a reliable story Um, and you had mentioned twitter a couple times already and i even think about like when there is just urgent news going on like i am constantly refreshing the hashtag around that news to kind of see and and even seeing my own behaviors i'm not always Really paying attention to who is posting what. I am just seeing this come through my feed, and I'm not always asking, you know, like, is this right? Is this true? Is this reliable? What What's the context of of this this media that they're sharing right now? So, what role uh, do you see uh, Twitter playing for an investigative reporter? Whether it's you know something that you are working with, something you are working against, something like what's that relationship like uh, for an investigative reporter uh, between you and Twitter,
1: it's a great tool that I would give up in a second if I left journalism, just because, and I can complain a little more later. But I mean, it's just it's just a cruel place to live. Uh, people sniping at each other, and it just it's just not healthy. But I mean, it's great because I can go there and see what's going on from every news organization in the country. Uh, I don't have to go to their websites they're posting links. So it's just, it's just all there right for me. And it's nice too, because I'm able to tweet something. And I'll use the, the, the winter storm as an example. I'm able to tweet out information right now. And thousands of people in Austin can see it right now, as opposed to me having to sign into where I type my stories in our system, write something somewhat comprehensive and coherent, give it to an editor, they edit it, write a headline. and you know, the, the, Making that sausage takes some time, whereas Twitter, I can knock something out in two sentences that tells people, okay, here's when you can, get, you can expect to get your power back, your water back, or maybe we don't know when you're going to get your power back or your water back. But people are needing information very instantly, which is it's such an invaluable tool. Now, if I have some news that I am going to break that is not incredibly timely, I probably want to do that in my article because people are going to be directed to that article. Click a link and that obviously helps our business financially rather than helping Twitter, right? I mean, I don't get any checks from Twitter. I get a check from Gannett, the owner of the American Statesman. So, uh, you know, there's a balance. You don't want to give away too much, but in a winter storm, I mean, lives are on the line. You want to get that information out as quickly as you can. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's at that moment where you realize that what we do is it's a service. There, there, there's a public service, Point to it. And, uh, you know, for all the hard days, the difficult days, the winter storm, although taxing, was great because, you know, felt like I was actually doing something and letting people know very important information that they needed to know right away.
0: Could you tell me the story of what, you, when thinking back to kind of going back to when you were writing in high school, um, I had asked you to kind of tell me a few of your most meaningful stories. And you said, ask me about the Olympic wrestler in high school. Can you yeah. tell me the story about the Olympic wrestler?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Ohio and went to a small private Catholic school. And we had a graduate who was an Olympic wrestler, U.S. Olympi- Olympian, who then went on to ultimate fighting. And he was like the original like OG champion. and. UFC before it got big. I mean, he 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 put it on the map. He's a hall of famer. His name's Mark Coleman. He got busted at one point for selling pot, and you would have thought that his life was over. Our city really turned its back on him. Turned down the uh, took out the signs. Welcome to Fremont, Ohio, home of Olympian Mark Coleman. Our school removed every memory of him photos trophies you name it and i just thought it was wrong i thought as a catholic institution that preaches the importance of forgiveness and grace and second chances that to to go to that extreme to turn our back on somebody was wrong and i wrote a column about it in our school paper um i i i, I don't know it probably wasn't the greatest written column i was i don't know a sophomore junior in high school i probably would be embarrassed to read it now but it served its purpose because a year later those photos those trophies came back and he was inducted into our school hall of fame and you know that was pretty cool that the, the power of the pen was very apparent that day And I think what I did was right. I think what the school did by listening to that young writer who doesn't know what he's talking about uh, was great, and they they admitted their faults, and um, that 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 was that was a sign that you know I can I can influence people with my thoughts, with my words, and um, you know I've written many better stories since then, but that's one that'll always jump out as a good story to tell because, uh, I, I believe that I helped right or wrong.
0: Another big story that you did, um, had to do with the city of Austin and homelessness services. Can you kind of tell me that story? How did you catch wind of what was going on? Uh, what did you write about and what was, what was the outcome of that?
1: Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to have another big one coming up here in a couple weeks. Um, and it's just such a, a mammoth topic for the city. Uh, We we can't have enough coverage on it, but the story you're talking about was, uh, so the city is spending a lot of money addressing the homelessness crisis. Last year, they spent 73 million, including federal city state funding, but all told 73 million. And I just look at the problem, and I think it's growing. So I did a public records request. I said, "Okay, you appropriated seventy three million to addressing homelessness. How much did you actually spend?" And they sent it back, and frankly, they were kind of embarrassed that they did not spend thirty one million during the fiscal year. That's a big chunk. Uh, so I, I just kind of stayed on them. I said, "What are you? What are you going to do with that?" And they started crunching numbers to see how much was still available that they could roll over to this fiscal year. And of that 31 million, 4 million, they intended to use for housing. And, you know, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I, I think it's fair to say that they would not have known that money existed had I not pushed them a little bit to see. What they were doing I think they were so consumed with covid response that they weren't paying attention to really how much they were doing for homelessness and so if i saved the money if i saved the city or if I got the city four million dollars to spend on housing that's great i, I, I don't I don't know if I'll go that far but I think that probably partially true that raising awareness to that is going to allow them to spend four million dollars on homelessness. So this was uh end of last year. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's a huge story right now, homelessness in Austin. Um, nobody is happy with how it's going. It, city officials, uh, city residents, and most of all, the homelessness population. I mean, they want to be housed and it's tough. It's really, really tough. And so, uh, we're going to be covering that extensively, probably for many years ahead, because this is not a problem that you can just make wave a magic wand at and fix overnight. I mean, it's just, it's just a really complicated problem with no easy solutions.
0: You said that you've got a big story coming up. Is it related to homelessness in Austin or is it, is it something different? It
1: is. It is. Um, so I, I'm, Went out and spoke with many homeless people. I, I say many, probably ten last week. Uh, just walked along the Town Lake Hike and Bike Trail where they are now living. They're not supposed to be there legally, but because of COVID, the city's saying this is not a bad thing if they're separating and socially distancing from others. So, just got their thoughts on you know what uh, what people are. Uh, experiencing how they got to homelessness. I mean, that's such a big question and it's always one of two things. Um, Something happened with the family, something happened in a job or a relationship and they didn't have family member to kind of fall back into to provide services. Um. It broke my heart. I was interviewing one woman and 50 feet away on the bike trail, a woman rode her bike by screaming at several homeless people, go get a job. And I'm like, what? Who talks like that? No matter your position on the city's homelessness crisis, you just don't talk to people like that. So I look back at her and just in case we didn't hear her. She she repeated it. She wanted us to know, go get a job. And I I, I hope and pray, I, I did, I prayed that night that that was just a bad day for that woman and that, that her heart really does not reflect her words because I just can't think of anything more cruel to say to somebody who is sleeping outside and who just got done sleeping outside during a, a winter storm that we have never seen before to say, go get a job. I mean, it, it's, it's brutal. And these are humans. And if I would encourage anybody who isn't quite comfortable with a homelessness situation here in Austin, go speak with some homeless people. Just go talk to them, get to know them, get to hear their story. They are interesting people. They're colorful people. Believe it or not, many of them are quite intelligent. I think you have to be to survive on the streets. So, um, yeah, it it was a good day. I just walked Town Lake and and spoke with people in tents and heard their stories. And, uh, you know, the city has a big vote coming up on May 1st, whether to reinstate a camping ban. And, you know, I wanted to get their thoughts. What should the city do? And many of them understand where the people are coming from who want them out of the way. We think it's an eyesore to see tents around town, Um, but they say we have nowhere to go. So it's tough. Um, It's, it's, it's a big, big topic with no easy solution. Um, But I would, I would encourage anybody go, go talk to homeless people. They're not going to bite you. It's keep your mask on. Um make them wear, wear their masks so you're not breathing on each other, but go talk to them and get to know them
0: with your stories you've you've gotten the chance to to kind of just be on the front lines of of seeing homelessness and and even the politics around homelessness as well as themes of of forgiveness and themes of justice. How have you seen in your time as a reporter how have you seen these things either influence your view of god um or how God's view, your view of God has influenced, uh, your work as a reporter.
1: It's a really good question and I can attack that from viewpoint of all three beats that I've covered, whether it's football, whether it's courts or city government, what I'm doing right now. Um, With courts, I mean, I covered some really heinous cases where people are doing things that just, uh, I have thick skin. Uh, Sometimes even I struggled hearing some of the facts of murders, uh, abuse of children, sexual assaults. But many of these people, not all, but many of these people made mistakes and are remorseful and had really bad days. Now, some people I think probably are more prone to just violence and maybe they need to uh, be taken away for a while, but many of these people have really bad days and it just makes me think how blessed I am when I hear these cases that my mistakes were not magnified. And a lot of that is, you know, not to get too political, it could be white privilege, it could be growing up in a uh, two-parent household uh, with with you know, median income, it could be access to schools that, that some of these other people don't have. So when they they slip up, it's, it's much more punitive to them. So I, I I find myself and I've spoken with murderers. I've spoken with people. I get jailhouse letters, uh, you know, from, from people who do really bad things and I don't think anything less of them. I, um, I think maybe before I came to Christ, I probably would have, but they are equals. They are, um, brothers and sisters. They're members of Christ. And I just hope that those who do have to go away to prison, find a Bible in the prison somewhere, read it, join a Bible study, get to know Christ because, um, you know, you may be going away for a while, but you can redeem yourself. You can still get into a relationship with Christ, get to know him. And that, uh, I, I, I just hope that happens. i when I'm in the courthouse, in the courtroom, uh, you know, those thoughts go through my mind. That hopefully, this person who made this very bad mistake can um, can find Christ.
0: Yeah. As a as a veteran, really, of the the journalism world, where do you see the future of journalism going? Ah. Uh,
1: I wish I, I I knew. I think that's the million dollar question. I I, I think eventually there will be n- no more actual newspapers. They will not be delivered. It costs a lot of money to print a paper, and it costs a lot of money right now to have a subscription to a print printed paper. So I think those will go away in the next ten years. I mean, uh, not to be morbid, but many of our readers won't be around in 10 years, 20 years anymore. Um, so I think it'll go digital only, and hopefully people are willing to pay for the service. Hopefully they recognize the importance of quality work, watchdog journalism. What I mean by that is, you know, you have government officials, ERCOT. uh, If people are not asking tough questions in the media, if people are not digging for documents in the media, you don't really have a checks and balance on your government. So I I hope people will recognize that and pay for journalism. That seems maybe uh, wishful thinking on my part sometimes, because it's easy to get down in this industry with the layoffs and, uh, all the things that we go through. Um, but yeah, I, I, I hope that at some point there will be a, a movement towards just, Hey, this is what we spend our money on. Just like we, we buy milk at the grocery store, just like we put fuel on our cars. We also have a subscription to our local daily paper.
0: Yeah. Well, Ryan, I think the, the million dollar question that we're all wondering, since you spent so many t- so much time in the courtroom, how similar and different are courtroom cases in real life versus the TV dramas <laughs> that we all know and love? Uh, similar
1: in the sense that the stakes are just as high as the real life in the fictional drama, um, you're talking about life and death. Often you're talking about going to prison or going out the front doors of the courthouse, back to your house, um, the, the heart pounding as the jury walks into the room with a verdict never goes away. Uh, just like a TV show. I mean, it's, 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 it's just a huge moment. The differences are, I mean, some court cases, trials can be really boring, tedious testimony from doctors, medical examiners, just dense scientific jargon that will never make the paper. So I just often tune it out. Um, it's, it, it's not as smooth and free flowing as you see on TV. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of similarities there's a lot of differences. I, I think most of the time covering a trial, you can kind of see what direction it's going. Whereas in a TV show, there's probably a little more suspense.
0: Well, Ryan, I appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your experience as as a reporter, uh, providing some insight in the world of journalism uh, in a time that is just, it's just I think it's just fascinating to watch and just the world and how it's changing and just noticing my own habits versus like my parents habits and my grandparents habits um but this is really really enjoyed this conversation i appreciate you coming and sharing your sharing your experiences
1: thank you tom thanks for having me on
0: next week we'll be hearing from ashlyn van de as she interviews rachel dodds thanks for listening